and the Bible has a lot to say about it as well. For today, I want to talk about, for this last one, I want to talk about um, happiness and what it means to be truly happy. Now, I know, this is not my first rodeo, so I know exactly what a lot of you might think and feel when I say I want to talk about the Bible and happiness. I think you might have a couple of reactions against that. One would be you think of sort of this really weird version of Christianity, more than weird, like often perverse version of Christianity that we can call the health and wealth gospel, where the the Bible and Christianity is used as a means to sort of find wealth and especially on the backs of other people and describe Christianity in this way that is not what the Bible says, that everything's always great and kind of put a facade on everything. And, and just, you know, if you're, if, if you're happy, if uh, you're faithful, then you'll be super wealthy and always healthy. That's not the Bible's view. And so maybe when I talk about the Bible, talk about happiness, maybe you think, what, that's weird. On the other hand, many of us might think when you talk about God caring about happiness, you might think about biblical text. Like Jesus says, take up my cross and take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like a a very happy thing and and how the Bible talks about suffering. I I get it. What I want to say to you is that even though it is true that we're called to take up our cross and to follow in the way of Jesus, which is the way of suffering, that's getting right at the issue of true happiness. Why are we exhorted to do that? Why did Jesus himself endure the cross in its shame? Do you remember what Hebrews tells us? for the joy set before him. And while Jesus says to take up our crosses and follow him and to follow his model of suffering, that is so that we might enter into the kingdom, so that we might enter into life. The promise is always oriented towards the end goal of shalom or flourishing. Jesus is offering the the door into the kingdom of heaven, which is a place and a space of flourishing. It turns out unexpectedly, the door is very low and the door is cross-shaped, but it is still the door into life. So if your understanding of Christianity is that it is, that the idea of talking about happiness or flourishing is not a part of what what it's about, that's what I want to help you understand today. Happiness, not in a shallow sense, but the fact that entering into the fullness of life that you made, that you were made for, that you long for, that you feel in your body that you don't have, those are longings given to you to show that you were made for something more. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. And I want to show you what that looks like. At our church, we just finished 12 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. I was not looking forward to it because Ecclesiastes is a very weird book. It's got all kinds of verses in there that if you read that, you say, that's in the Bible. I mean, it's like, it's a weird book and it's very dark. And the whole big idea of Ecclesiastes is that everything feels like it's meaningless, that everything is futile. Everything good comes to an end. Everything's broken. Everything gets broken. And eventually everything dies, including us. One of the things I really that was really driven home to me in our in our time of preaching through Ecclesiastes and our church really responded well to this is to embrace that it's precisely that sense of brokenness and hevel or smoke or vapor that is precisely what draws us to remember that we're made for something more. And that's what I want to kind of drive home for you today. Okay, so 
you have on your handout a bunch of stuff that I'll go through quickly. Don't get overwhelmed by it. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about what the world says about happiness and, and some ideas about it. So this, there's nothing in your handout about this, but I don't know if any of you have run across um, an author who's international bestseller now, na now named uh, Yuval Noah Harari. He's got a book called Sapiens and some other books that are, you know, literally hundreds of millions of, you know, readers probably, or millions of readers, I should say. And what he does, he's an Oxford-trained historian, and he provides in this book Sapiens and some other books a very ambitious history of humanity that he understands to be a two and a half million year process of evolutionary biography. And he isn't just writing sort of a history of human civilization. He is attempting to write a, a, a picture of, a, a story of the actual history of Homo sapiens, that is us, who he says we are simply an animal of no significance that has just ended up dominating over the other genuses of animals, including uh, some close ones to us, according to them, Homo Neanderthal and Homo Denisovan. And in this very ambitious book, uh, which is interesting to read and remarkably overstated, but in this very interesting book, he describes it in this, this unpredictable, uncontrollable process of evolution. He says that Homo sapiens has developed, have developed certain skills to, that have enabled us to just be superior over all other animals. And he goes into a bunch of things related to it. And it's actually very interesting to read because he's very thoughtful about economics and all these kind of issues. Now he is, Harari is a very highly educated, very intelligent homo sapient. And he certainly, no one could ever say that he lacks self-confidence uh, in his description of human development. Um, and there are a lot of things I could say about his understanding of the world, but what the, the biggest thing I want to drive home is that after this super long description of the history of humanity, again, that's very interesting and very insightful at points, he brings it down to two issues. At the end of the day, the very last two chapters in this very long book, one is his ponderings of what the future of our species is in light of technology and things like that, some interesting reflections. He's written some later books on that. But the other thing he brings it down to is the question of happiness. His penultimate chapter is entitled, And They Lived Happily Ever After. And here's what he states, at the, again, after this very long description. This is what he says. Here's a quote from the book. He says, The last 500 years have witnessed a breathtaking series of revolutions. The earth has been united into a single ecological and historical sphere. The economy has grown exponentially. Humankind today enjoys the kind of wealth that used to be the stuff of fairy tales. Science and the Industrial Revolution have given humankind superhuman powers and practically limitless energy. The social order has been completely transformed, as have politics, daily life, and human psychology. So he's just acknowledging there's no better time in the history of humanity to live than now, and that's really true. But then he says this, but are we happier? Did the wealth humankind has accumulated over the last five centuries, did it really translate for us into a newfound contentment? Has the cognitive revolution, which is part of how he describes why we're superior, has the cognitive revolution made the world a better place to live in? Was the late Neil Armstrong, whose footprint remains intact on the windless moon, was he happier 
than the nameless hunter-gatherer who 30,000 years ago left her handprint on a wall in the Chavot cave? This is the question he asks. Are we happier? Are we happy? And it's really a question we can't avoid, nor should we. Harari's answer after this long book is no, he says. Despite all these things we've done well, we're not actually, it doesn't seem we're happier today than we were before. Though he notes, it's actually a very difficult thing to sort of assess historically because we can't really know what a medieval peasant, for example, whether that person was happy or not. We, in other words, we can't just project our life experiences back onto medieval peasants and say, wow, they must have had a horrible life because they don't have all the things we have. We really don't know because Ex, you know, happiness is very much correlated to expectations. So we don't really know. And additionally, you know, discerning happiness depends on how you define it. If we measure happiness by material metrics, such as diet and wealth and longevity, then certainly we would be happier than everybody else. But it doesn't seem apparently the case that we're actually happier than humans before us. The real issue, Harari notes in this chapter, is that we really we need to do better than just think about happiness as you and I tend to do as kind of an emotional mathematics that we're happy if we have a sum of more pleasant moments than unpleasant ones. And as I was talking about with emotions and even inside out in the last hour, this is part of our problem I think is that we have come to think that we're happy if we are always feeling good. But it's very interesting to think about where that idea of happiness came from and whether that really is the best way to understand it. What he says instead is, and I think he's right on this, happiness consists in seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningless, I'm sorry, as meaningful and worthwhile. That happiness really can't be defined as a lot of times we think as just I have a lot of mostly positive emotions but it's something deeper than that, which is, is life actually meaningful and worthwhile? And I think that's really getting at the heart of reality, that happiness and meaningfulness really entail each other. So for example, if you have a crying infant in the middle of the night, depending how do you interpret that situation in your better moments, it will depend whether you think of it as loving, nurture, lovingly nurturing a new life or being a slave to a baby dictator. Those, those two interpretations, one of which is happy, will make you feel content, another, even though the situation is hard, it's not so much just the positive emotions because getting up in the middle of the night for three months or whatever is, is not a happy emotion, but you could still describe that as happy if you understood it as meaningful and worthwhile. And that's really the question that Harari is addressing in this very modern book is again the question that people have been asking themselves forever and nobody thought about it more than the ancient philosophers again and they called it the good life. Now I know for you and me the good life maybe that just evokes material images but they don't mean by it just material goods they mean the truly content and flourishing life. And as you may know, Christians have talked about this a lot. One of the greatest Christians of all time, St. Augustine, like countless thinkers before him, in his very famous huge book called The City of God, he boils down the essence 
of human meaningfulness to being true happiness. He says this, it is the decided opinion of all those who use their brains that all people desire to be happy. Happiness is what all humans want. People cannot not want it. It's what drives us. It's what it means to have a brain. It's what it means to be human. A couple years ago, I was standing in line at the neighborhood Lowe's because I was building an extra part of my deck. And uh, among the glossy magazines of fine woodworking and creative gardening and everything, there was this glossy magazine right there as I was waiting to check out called The Happiness Formula, How to Find Joy and Live Your Best Life. And I had to buy it even though it was ridiculously expensive at $12.99 for a magazine. It's horrible. But I had to buy it because I was researching for this book. And in this magazine, what you find is this glossy, very well laid out, 95 pages of articles and pro tips and graphs about what they call the science of happiness. And these short, snappy little essays and little you know, graphic bars basically tell you, here's how to be happy. Eat right, avoid bad relationships, ride bicycles more like the Swedish people do, practice yoga. I mean, it's got all these pro tips. So I mean, even, even Lowe's or Home Depot is offering us their wisdom now on how to be happy. And, and why not? really. I mean, it's what it means to be American. Have you ever paid attention how it's right there in our Bill of Rights? You remember our Bill of Rights? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? Now, it'd be easy to sort of write that off and say, wow, that's really arrogant or something. And for some people, it probably is, maybe especially today. But when the founding fathers said that this is what it means, what they were saying is this is what it means to be human, as opposed to being controlled by a government. To be human is means that you have the right, this is the great American experiment that may not last much longer. <laughs> I mean, most countries don't last as long as we do. And, you know, we're, what, 250 plus years into this attempt at government. It was a very novel attempt at government. It may not last. I mean, it's just good meditatio malorum. It's a good moment for you to recognize that you and I have always lived in this kind of economy. This is not the kind of uh, societal structure that most humans have experienced throughout the entirety of history. This is a particular experiment in doing government that, you know, very well may not last. So it's okay. Our Christian identity is not it, that we're Americans. It's that we are citizens of a different kingdom of heaven. It's a great country to live in. I wouldn't rather live anywhere else, but it is a certain way. And, and what was the founding father's vision is that to be human meant that you had the right to life, liberty, and again, the ability to pursue true human flourishing. That's what they meant by happiness. They didn't mean just, you know, a bigger SUV than everybody else in your neighborhood or whatever, they just they meant actually true human flourishing. And they, the reason the Founding Fathers talked that way is because they love the ancient philosophers. Thomas Jefferson had a copy of Seneca on his nightstand when he died. Right? They all loved the ancient philosophers, and they got this idea from the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks and the Romans have a word for it. The Greeks have a word for it, eudaimonia, which means flourishing or, or happiness. Okay? And in other words, whether it's today with gurus today or in the ancient world, everybody has asked the question, 
how do you find a truly meaningful, happy life? And that leads us then to ask, well, what in the world does the Bible have to say about that great human question? And it turns out, even as is with emotions and relationships and other topics that really matter to us, the Bible has an amazingly brilliant and wise and nuanced and holistic and practical vision to answer this question that you and I long for, the question of how do you find a meaningful life? And the answer, according to the Bible, is found in a relationship with God and particularly now in understanding who Jesus is for us. So what I want to do is just turn for a few minutes to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Chester reminded me, I forgot when I was here five years ago, we actually talked about the Beatitudes, but they're worth talking about again five years later. Um, but to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly to just help you understand a little bit about how the Gospels and how the Bible presents Jesus in relationship to this question of true human happiness. So the first point there, I say Jesus the teacher in Matthew. Go ahead and flip ahead, and it's great that the song we've been singing this weekend comes right out of this, but go ahead and flip ahead to a text I mentioned last night. Again, my favorite text of Scripture, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. Beautiful and powerful image. Jesus says, at that time, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So that's almost sounds like the Gospel of John there. It's a very high vision of Jesus as the only way to know the Father. It's a very strong sort of biblical statement. And then look at verse 28. These are these very precious verses. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest or Sabbath or shalom. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a weird image. This is not an image we use very much about, like we, we use image of God or Jesus as a shepherd, as a savior, um, as maybe, I don't know what other images you might use to being what it means to be a disciple. But this is not one we use very much in the church or think much about as being a Christian means taking a yoke upon your neck. It's, it's not a very pleasant image. Like we have crosses on the top of our churches. None of us put oxen yoke on the top of our churches or on our front doors. It's a very odd image to us, right? But it's actually an image of wisdom because what, what this image is, is saying, and again, it's found in those words, learn from me, that what Jesus is saying is true rest, true flourishing, the, the peace that you long for and teenagers especially hear this, but it's true for all of us, is not found in doing whatever you want. It's the great paradox of wisdom and of Christianity, that we think rest or flourishing is found 
and you being free to do whatever you want. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's not saying, how dare you care about rest? How dare you care about flourishing? How dare you care about happy? He's not saying that. He's saying, I want you to find true rest. I really do. He's not saying you should get nothing out of this. My relationship with you is just one of duty and you just better you know, deal with it. That's not at all how God approaches us. God is saying, I want you to find rest, but guess what? You're not gonna find it by doing whatever you think is wise. You're not gonna find it by doing whatever you want. You're going to find it by learning to take a yoke upon you that's gonna guide you and not a yoke that is meant to crush you or burden you or make you resentful. And a lot of times as parents, that's the kind of yoke we put on our kids because we're afraid of what's gonna happen to them. We actually burden them. There's no wisdom there. That's not Jesus' yoke. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how can a yoke that is actually guiding and directing actually be life-giving. Well, I love how Augustine describes this. This is one of Augustine's favorite texts as well. And he says, Jesus's yoke is like the burden of feathers to a bird. The feathers do weigh the bird down, but they enable it to fly and find life. And this is the paradoxical vision that takes faith and practice to actually know that true life, rest and shalom is found in learning to submit to someone that we trust who says, I will give you life. So again, on the one hand, we could interpret Jesus, maybe especially younger people or anyone, we could interpret Jesus as saying, man, I don't wanna be involved in that because that's just gonna kind of ruin my life and burden me and, and make me do much stuff I don't wanna do. On the other hand, some of us might be inclined to say, again, you better obey God because he's God and you're just a human. I'd like to suggest to you that that's not how the Bible speaks on either of those. The Bible is saying, you want life. God affirms that, and I'm gonna show you the way to find life. And this is why Jesus is so primarily depicted as a teacher of wisdom. If you look at this under point one here, Jesus the teacher in Matthew, don't get all, don't get worried about all the details of it. Um, this is the kind of thing somebody who's writing a commentary on Matthew produces, which I am, as we'll eventually get to that. Uh, but it, the point is not all the details. The point is to show you Matthew is super structured with the primary purpose of showing us that Jesus is a teacher who both says things and models faithfully what he says. So there you have an introduction to Matthew. That's Roman numeral one. And then you have Roman numerals two, three, four, five, six, and seven, or sorry, two, three, four, five, and six that are collections of Jesus' teachings along with collections of Jesus' actions that correlate to each other, that lock into each other with like a DNA helix. And in each of those, it says, you see first discourse, second discourse, third discourse, fourth, those are these very famous teaching blocks in Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as a teacher unlike anybody else. And he collects Jesus' teachings into these big memorizable blocks. You can easily memorize them. You can memorize the Sermon on the Mount very easily. It's the way it's structured. You can memorize the whole thing. Millions of Christians throughout history have memorized the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very doable. 
is because it's a collection of sayings that help you meditate on what Jesus the teacher said. And so if you turn to the, or look at the next thing, it says Matthew's five major discourses or teaching blocks. This is just to kind of pull them apart and say, this is how Jesus is primarily presented. He's giving us wisdom for life on different themes. The first theme is what it means to be and do righteous, to do good. That's really the question of doing good. The second theme is the, the idea of what's going to happen when you're a faithful witness. It's going to actually result in persecution. The third theme is about how God reveals himself in ways that separates people into those who believe and those who don't. The fourth theme, which we looked at very briefly last night, is what it means to live life together in the church. And then the fifth theme is what's going to happen, what judgment upon the world is now and in the future. And all of this together is presenting, the point B is that is presenting Jesus as a sage or as a philosopher for the purpose of giving us life. This is, if this is not a part of how you understand Jesus, if you just think of him as this sort of Lord and sacrificial death, those are great things. We don't want less of that. But you need to have this primary understanding that the way the Bible understands Jesus is that, certainly, but as one who teaches life. He teaches life. And what I want to do then is just spend a few minutes just drilling down a little bit into this first teaching block, and especially just the first few verses of it. Um, and Roman numeral 2 says the central and, and centrality and importance of the Sermon on the Mount, just simply there, these three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are the most famous portion of the entire Bible, more famous than John 3, 16, even though for us maybe that's what you think of. These have been the most studied portion of the entire Christian Bible for the last 2,000 years. More sermons, commentaries, homilies have been done on the Sermon on the Mount than any other portion of the Bible. It's, a, it's the first teaching block in the New Testament. It's super heavy. It's had a major influence on every denomination, every monastic order. In fact, you, you, you cannot... You cannot find any aspect of Christianity that hasn't been touched by the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is such a powerful thing. So obviously I can't talk about it for more than a few minutes. There's so much here in it. Um, but what I want to do is just help you understand that what the Sermon on the Mount is primarily doing is the same thing I've been talking about. It's giving us a vision for how to find true life in a really unexpected way. And there's a lot we could look at to show it to you, but let me, if you're looking at the handout there, let me just jump ahead to the last two, and then I'll go back to the Beatitudes. Wholeness and wise and foolish builders. If you look at Matthew 548, this is a very famous and unfortunately not very well translated verse. Matthew 548 there in the sermon, a really crucial part of the sermon says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That, that that's a slight misunderstanding of the word perfect there. It means whole or complete, not perfect in the sense of like uh, that you never do anything wrong. Um, it means consistent. So was it the Browns or the Bengals? Who was it a few years ago? Shows my lack of football knowledge. Who lost every game, and then people said at that time they had a perfect record. Who was it? Anybody remember Browns, yes. So that's that's a sense of that's the older English sense of perfect. You, they lost every game, so there was plenty of flaws there, but it was consistent, right? Sorry if you're a fan, didn't mean to step on any toes there, but anybody. Um, but that's that's the older sense of the word perfect, and that's the sense that's being used here as well. It means 
wholeness or consistency. And that's one of the big themes in the Sermon on the Mount that is talked about that we don't have time to get into fully today, but just that Jesus is saying, you want to be, you want to find true life? You need to pay attention to the ways in your life that you are not consistent, that the outside part of your life doesn't match your heart. That's the biggest emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you do a bunch of external stuff, but your heart is not attuned to God, Jesus says that's an inconsistency and there's no life there, is what he's saying. You will never find life when you're trying to do things in a way that where there's this huge disconnect between your outside and your heart. That's what he talks about all in chapter five, in chapter six, the same thing. He's talking about um, doing good deeds just to get the praise of other humans rather than with a heart that's oriented toward God. And he says, there's no life there. there you do that, you're never going to find life with God. There's no life there at all. And, and the whole thing, anxiety is the same thing. Anxiety is a splitting of your soul between now and an imagined future. You see, it's the same kind of splitting. You're not, you're not whole. You're not consistent. You're focusing on an imagined future rather than on the present when God is present to you. All this stuff has to do with wholeness. Okay, so that's one of the big ideas that he answers. Then also land at the very end, turn to chapter 7, and then we'll go back to the Beatitudes and wrap this up. Chapter 7 shows us, when you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you haven't gotten to this point, it shows us that the whole point of this is Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Look at 7.24. Jesus concludes by saying, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rains fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and great was the fall of it. That's the concluding image he uses after all this teaching, which really is going to be true for the entire book of Matthew. If you listen to me, you are like a wise person. And what happens to a wise person? They endure the trials of life, both now and then finally death. If you hear these words, which you're all hearing them, and don't do them, you're like a fool. This is just like Proverbs 1 to 9, right? It's an invitation to us to say, don't you want to find life? Then don't be a fool. A, God isn't showing up with this harsh, angry, condemning, you better do it because I'm God and you're not. That's not how God shows up. He shows up saying, you want to find life. So don't be a fool. Build your life on what I'm saying and you will find life. So what is he saying? Well, there's a lot in here, but let's just concentrate for a few minutes on the very first thing he says. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, the super famous portion of the Bible that we call the Beatitudes. Why do we call them the Beatitudes? <laughs> Maybe you remember old Robert Schuler and the Hour of Power. I think this is he was probably one who talked this way. Maybe that's not true of him. Uh, somebody I know has said at some point that these are the Beatitudes because these are the, the attitudes you should have. These are the Beatitudes, right? That's not what it means. Beatus, any Latin lovers in here? Anybody homeschooling your kids with Latin or something? Uh, I don't mean Hispanic, passionate people. I don't mean Latin lovers in that sense. I mean people who love Latin. Um, Beatus means happy 
or flourishing. The reason these are called beatitudes is because these are statements of true happiness. The Greek word that's behind here is the word makarios, which means the exact same thing. These are statements of happiness. The very first teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, he gives nine statements of where true flourishing or happiness can be found. That's what these are. That's what a macroism is. I know your translation says blessed, which is an attempt to try to get at this because, of course, you can only truly be happy if you are in a relationship with God, which we could describe hashtag blessed, right? But, but what this doesn't mean that if you do these things, God will bless you. And that's the problem. When you, read, when you read these verses, it sounds like they're kind of saying, if you do these things, then God's going to bless you. But that's a different word in Greek and Hebrew. That's not what this is. This word is the word for flourishing your happiness. It's just like Psalm 1, which starts the same way. Happy is the one who does not, you know, walk and stand and sit with bad people, but instead delights in God's instructions. And then what's the result of those two different ways? Exact same vision here. The one, who, the one who is flourishing is the one who is a tree planted by streams of water which bears fruit. And the one that is not living according to God, the foolish one, is like chaff that blows away. It's the exact same image. And this first teaching is Jesus saying, what is the nature of true happiness? I'm going to tell you. Jesus the philosopher is going to tell you. Seneca's told you what happiness is. Aristotle's told you what happiness is. I'm going to tell you. So what's he say? Look at it. Happy or flourishing are the poor in spirit. Okay, that's kind of weird. Happy or flourishing are those who mourn. Happy and flourishing are the meek. Happy or flourishing are those who are hungering and thirsting for God to set the world to right. Flourishing or happier, the merciful, meaning that when someone's wronged you, you show mercy to them. Flourishing or happier, the pure in heart. Flourishing or happier, the peacemakers. That is that when there's conflict between you and others, I think is what this primarily means. You're the one who makes peace. You're the one who buries the hatchet. You're the one who is willing to be wronged. And if you still don't think this is crazy, look at verses 10 and following. Flourishing and happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, flourishing and happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who enjoys that? Who enjoys somebody misrepresenting you and speaking ill of you? When you look through these statements of happiness, they are shocking. Because with the exception of pure in heart, which I think is the exceptional one, these are completely the opposite of what you and I would say is happiness. I can imagine that Peter just like he did at the Caesarea Philippi Confession when Jesus talked about, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Peter tried to pull him aside and say, hey, that's not quite fitting with our marketing campaign here. 
we're, we're all about you being awesome and bringing the kingdom in and we're going to be part of this. this. This suffering and dying thing isn't good. The Bible doesn't tell us this happened, but I can imagine at this moment, Peter might have been tempted to do the same thing. Whoa, Jesus. Okay, hey, I'm totally into the fact that you're preaching about true human flourishing. That is amazing. Can we work a little bit on the messaging here? Because the things you're saying are true human flourishing are crazy. Poverty of spirit? Poverty, that's the metaphor there. Need, brokenness, desire for being in a place of humility is what it really is. And humiliation even. Mourning, feeling in your body, the brokenness of the world and longing. These are all coming from Isaiah. And the, the, what this, the flourishing of the morning means, those who are longing for God to set the world to right, feeling the mourning and brokenness of the world. Meekness, this is a very interesting little word that this probably isn't the very best translation. It means something more like um, control and not taking your own vengeance is what it means. I know to us, meek sounds like kind of timidity, but the, the word praus here is used of Jesus in Matthew 11 that we looked at and also when he enters in to Jerusalem and then cleanses the temple, that meekness means like controlled emotion, right? That you, in other words, you're not taking your own vengeance. You are willing to be wronged and to not try to take over things. Hungering and thirsting, again, being merciful, being a peacemaker. All of these friends are completely unexpected about what it means to be truly happy. But this is how Jesus begins his teaching, both affirming that we long for true happiness and completely reorienting our hearts to say that what you think is going to make you happy, that new car, that better house, that better spouse, whatever you think it is, is going to make you happy. Jesus is saying, I want to reorient your soul, your thinking and your love to understand that true happiness is found not in everything going well for you, but in learning a new allegiance. Because if you look at what he says about happiness here, all of them, the second part of all of them, are oriented toward God's kingdom work. He says in 5.3, if you look back there, why can we say the, the poverty of spirit people are happy or flourishing? Because those are the people that are part of the kingdom of heaven. And that's how he, he comes back to that in verse 10 as well. Even those who are persecuted, that's the state of true happiness or flourishing because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between are just other ways of describing what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Be, uh, verse 4, be comforted by God, inheriting the earth, satisfied, receiving mercy. Verse 8, um, seeing God. Verse 9, be called the children of God. And then again, kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about it then in verses 11 and 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you see, Here's the beautiful radicalness of Jesus. He's saying, you want to know where true life is to be found? I agree with you. That's the right desire. The place to find it is in a new and different allegiance. 
to learning a new yoke, learning a new way of inhabiting the world, learning a new way of seeing and being in the world that is counterintuitive, but is the place where life is actually found because it's oriented toward a time and a place that is now and is coming that is different than this world. That there's a kingdom of heaven that is coming from heaven to earth. This is the great Christian hope. This is the story of the Bible, that God is restoring his reign from, new, from the creation to the new creation. He's bringing his reign from heaven to earth, and that those who will find life are those who are in allegiance to that. Those whose hearts and lives are oriented, who learn, who take a yoke upon them that is easy and light. It is a stricture, but it's a stricture that gives us life. And Jesus starts his whole teaching here by giving us this vision of what this kind of person looks like. You don't do these things to earn favor with God. You don't do these things to earn an entrance into God's kingdom. These are the things that mark by the power of the Spirit what it means to be a disciple. And this is the invitation of Jesus to come and be a disciple. Come, take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. And so, friends, this is the vision. We could spend a lot more time unpacking what it looks like, but my main goal for today is to help you rediscover that God in Christ, revealed in Holy Scripture, is speaking right into your deepest longings to find out how in the world do you navigate your life, whether you are nine or 90. How do you live today present to the reality that God is coming? And he says, come and learn the ways that he is. Jesus says these same things. He's poor in spirit. He mourns. He's meek. He's hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And he says, if you want to be my disciples, come and enter into this way of being in the world, and you will find life. Let me pray.